Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Tenure provides college and university professors academic freedom protections, not to mention job security, but attempts to limit or abolish tenure have increased. Inside Higher Ed reporting in December that conservative lawmakers in Missouri and Iowa proposed bills in 2017 to end tenure for public university and college faculty following a similar effort in Wisconsin two years earlier. And Texas is the latest state bringing this up recently with its lieutenant governor pledging to pursue legislation to end tenure for faculty who teach critical race theory at public universities. What's at stake for academia? Today, where we live, we talk about the future of tenure. Coming up, we hear from the union that represents faculty at the University of Connecticut, and we learn how Yale, a private institution, handles tenure. First, joining us on the phone, Colleen Flaherty, senior faculty reporter at Inside Higher Ed. Colleen, welcome to our show. Yeah. So uh, when we talk about tenure, um, people obviously in academic uh, settings are familiar with how it's set up at their institutions. Uh, But for the rest of us, talk about tenure and and how it works specifically. Right. Well, tenure is um, essentially it's um, so professors hopefully, you know, get hired um, onto, uh, you know, most of them tend to or hope to get hired onto the tenure track. Um, and it is an assistant professorship for about six or seven years, during which they are evaluated annually, typically for their activities in teaching, service, and especially research at most institutions. Um, and at the end of that six or seven year probationary period, they submit um, a formal, um, you know, very serious dossier of all the work that they've completed, um, you know, those interim reviews over the six or seven years. Um, They get the input of external evaluators as to, you know, their contributions to the academy and to the field. Um, And then they rely on initially uh, their departmental, you know, immediate disciplinary peers at their institution to recommend them or not for tenure. And if that first stage is successful, then their tenure proceeds, uh, their tenure application will go up to typically like a college or university, uh, you know, a college within the university um, level group of peers who are not necessarily disciplinary experts, but um, evaluate all kinds of tenure packages over the course of the year. And then if that next step is successful, um, it may go up to another layer of peer review, depending on the size of the institution. Then it'll typically go to the provost and even sometimes the president. In certain cases, a university's governing board will have to um, approve of the application as well. But this is, in most cases, uh, a rubber stamping, essentially, because typically those um, board, you know, board of regents, you know, board of trustees, these are not necessarily, you know, these are typically not academics themselves. 
So the tenure process um, is not supposed to be, it's not supposed to blindside anyone. Depending at the kind of institution you're at, there's always, you know, typically like the more elite the institution is, the more of a kind of black box the uh, process might be. But, you know, the idea is if everything has gone right and you've been effectively mentored over the course of your six or seven years, um, you have a pretty good idea as to like where the decision is going to go. And what does tenure get you? You know, derisively, it's like referred to often as, uh, you know, a job for life where you can't get fired. Um, that's actually not true. You can get fired for things like, um, you know, poor performance that's documented typically over several years um, or, you know, some kind of moral failure. Let's say you get, you know, um, arrested or, you know, sent, uh, sentenced for some crime. Moral turpitude is how it's referred to. Um, but really what it gets you is academic freedom, the right to and the freedom to pursue controversial research ideas um, and to, you know, field and experiment with potentially po- unpopular ideas and not have to worry about somebody trying to take your job away because of that. And this is ultimately, you know, in the interest of the academy as a whole, uh, because it, it forwards knowledge. You know, what you've described is very time intensive, and I'm wondering when we think it about is. how tenure has evolved, you know, when we think about the demographics of, of tenured professors, you know, how has that changed? And are there issues within this process that you've laid out uh, that impacts uh, or underrepresent certain candidates for getting tenure? Right. Um, so in the 1970s, um, it's, you know, almost kind of looked back on now as like the golden era of tenure, about 75% of the faculty as a whole was tenured or tenure track, meaning they had those freedoms, you know, that I talked to a certain level of job security, um, hopefully, you know, pretty, you know, good pay, you know, for, for what we're doing. Um, and over the course of the decades in between then and now, um, the Proportions have shifted where about now 25% of the faculty across higher education as a whole is tenured or tenure track, and 75% is non tenure track. And the reasons for this are, you know, complex, but they, you know, most of the time come down to money. There's been a dramatic um, public disinvestment in higher education. Institutions have had to fund for themselves more in how they, uh, you know, finance themselves. And so one area where they've cut is the instructional budget. It's a lot cheaper to employ, um, you know, adjunct non-tenure track professors. Um, you know, rates vary from institution per course. Um, but, you know, some reports suggest that average per course pay is about $3,500 a course. Um, so it's a lot cheaper to pay, you know, an adjunct, uh, you know, 3500 per course for a couple courses a year and have the flexibility to um, fire them if enrollment is, you know, not great one semester um, than it is to have, uh, you know, ranks and ranks of tenured track faculty members or tenured faculty members who, for reasons we discussed earlier, you know, just um, are, are a lot harder to, to get rid of, um, you know, this is not an endorsement at all um, of that system. It's just an explanation. Um, you know, ultimately, faculty advocates say that this system hurts students 
uh, most of all, you know, beyond the um, poor working conditions that it subjects adjunct uh, non-tenure track faculty members to, uh, because students, um, you know, are not, you know, getting the kind of, um, you know, investment and, uh, you know, potential long-term relationships out of adjunct professors that they could be getting if, you know, most or all of their uh, professors were tenured or tenure track and, and had a certain kind of commitment to the institution and the institution to them. The stats that you laid out are, are pretty uh, startling uh, when you see how uh, institutions um, over the last few decades uh, have really started to rely more on the non-tenured faculty, the adjuncts and instructional um, staff, uh, Colleen. And so when we look at who these people are that are filling these roles, can you talk more about that? Right. Sure. Um, so there is a lot of inequity built into this system, not just for the, uh, you know, issues of pay, you know, and working conditions that I mentioned. Um, Non-tenure track faculty members tend to be disproportionately, people of color disproportionately uh, women. And, you know, this presents, um, you know, equity and diversity, uh, you know, issues for academe as a whole, especially now at a time when academe is, you know, supposedly um, facing these issues head on. Uh, earlier, I, I mentioned how uh, universe, certain uh, states are uh, looking at legislators, policymakers are looking at uh, tenure and thinking about how to limit or abolish uh, tenure. And so when we think about, um, again, the, the protections that provides uh, a faculty uh, within institutions and how it impacts uh, the research and the commitment uh, by universities uh, to fund uh, research and these academic pursuits, can you talk about that and, and how that impacts morale um, at these uh, universities. Right. Um, so beyond, uh, you know, budget cuts that we've seen from tenure and uh, I'm sorry, from COVID-19, um, the last couple of years have brought a wave of um, anti-critical, you know, so-called critical race theory legislation um, at the state level. And um this I'm finding now in my reporting is kind of turning into in this kind of second legislative season of this um, into like related attacks on tenure. For example, um, Texas is a place where critical race theory uh, was banned last year at the K through 12 level. It's, um, you know, being threatened now at the university level. And the faculty council at the University of Texas at Austin recently signed on to a national uh, initiative by the American Association of University Professors and the African American Policy Forum. Um, basically, it's a statement saying that we affirm the faculty right to teach uh, critical race theory and uh, gender justice in, you know, the, our, the ways that we see you know, and know to be expert without political interference. And the uh, lieutenant governor of Texas was so offended by this action and the suggestion um, that faculty members would, you know, want to assert their right to teach freely without political interference that he uh, two weeks ago came out and said that we will end tenure in this state. As far as I know, he hasn't put forward a specific legislative proposal yet. So it's hard to tell what kind of teeth this has, but um, the lieutenant governor in Texas has a lot of power to set the legislative agenda. 
And so that's a very uh, serious thing um, that, you know, that's happening. Uh, beyond that, we see a few bills in other states. Um, this is not the first year this has happened, but they do seem to be more um, plentiful this, this legislative season, uh, bills in other states to um, limit or end tenure. And I've seen a reporting on, on Georgia University System Board of Regents approving uh, policies uh, late last year uh, where universities can fire tenured professors with little to no uh, faculty uh, input. And you've also been doing some reporting on even though someone may have tenure, we talk about job security, the University of Missouri looking at salary cuts to some tenured professors often without uh, due notice. So talk through talk us about how that's happening uh, in University of Missouri, Colleen. Sure. Um, so starting with uh, the University of Missouri um, in. So it's, it's a very unusual uh you know, what's happening there. It's something that I haven't come across in my reporting um, yet, but the uh, chancellor of the system also became, I'm sorry, the president of the system, the University of Missouri system, uh, Munchoy, also became the president of Mizzou, the flagship university campus um, in 2017. So, or, I'm sorry, in 2020. Um, so he has a lot of power now. And um, apparently this is, an authority that he's always had, but I don't think that it has been exercised in this way before, but um, he quietly went into um, the bylaws in the system bylaws in May 2020 when everyone was, you know, according to faculty members, distracted by COVID, understandably, um, and put a new policy in place where he can invoke his executive authority to cut faculty pay, individual faculty members pay by 25% for reasons including poor performance, um, lack of productivity, or factors that aren't necessarily related, you know, immediately um, in the control of the faculty member. For example, uh, like enrollment and budget issues. And this is really concerning because, um, well, the university has made some, uh, you know, kind of statements regarding objectivity and objective standards. Faculty members thus far say that it's been um, employed in a very um, unclear way, and in the sense it could be used to target individual faculty members, which undercuts essentially the whole idea of tenure, not necessarily by taking tenure away, but by cutting, you know, one of the benefits of tenure, which is you know, job stability in the form of pay, if that makes sense. Uh, this is, again, a, a startling uh, example uh, in Missouri, but, you know, do you think this could be replicated uh, uh, in other states, at other universities? You know, coming up, we're going to hear from the UConn chapter of the American Association of University Professors, but to to look and see these examples happening in states, it must be concerning for uh, faculty at large. Right. Um, it's unclear what, you know, if this kind of same executive authority exists in other states and other university systems. Um, also, there was a lot of, like, slippage of academic freedom, or, or especially shared governance during COVID. And now that hopefully we're sort of coming out of it um, and things are, you know, quote-unquote returning to normal, um, this kind of stuff would not go as unnoticed for as long as it did in Missouri. Um, but I think generally it just sort of speaks to... You know, the the, the environment um, for tenure as a whole, whether it's trying to, as you mentioned in the uh, University System of Georgia, 
trying to uh, make it easier to fire tenured faculty members through a process called post-tenure review or cutting their pay or, you know, attacking tenure straight on, as we mentioned in Texas. Um, it just, you know, it's just kind of part of these general attacks on tenure that are happening now. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. My guest on the phone, Colleen Flaherty, senior faculty reporter at Inside Higher Ed. Her reporting includes how colleges and universities are relying more and more on non-tenured faculty and adjunct staff. So how is this coming up at Connecticut colleges and universities? We're going to learn how this issue has been talked about on the campus of Yale University. And later we talk to the UConn chapter of the American Association of University Professors. Now, do you teach at a college or university in Connecticut? We want to hear from you. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the future of tenure at American colleges and universities. My guest, Colleen Flaherty, senior reporter at Inside Higher Ed, told us back in the 70s, 75% of faculty were tenured or were on the tenure track. But that number has steadily declined over the last few decades, and now more than 70% of faculty are non-tenured or adjunct. We wanted to learn more about the tenure process at a private university. Joining us now on Zoom is Madison Hahami who's a former staff reporter for the Yale Daily News. She covered faculty and academics, and she's a sophomore at Yale's Hopper College. Madison, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks so much for having me. So we heard Colleen lay out how intensive it is uh, to uh, achieve tenure at colleges and universities, and you've done some reporting on what this looks like at Yale. And so is it much different um, when when we compare Yale to other universities? Can you walk us through the process? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Like Caitlin outlined, the process at Yale is definitely an intensive process. There are a lot of steps. Um, And from my reporting and talking with people on tenure track and who are previously tenured, a lot of them did mention how at other universities, the process did seem to be a lot less obscure. So there are a bunch of different steps um, at Yale. There is a tenure clock of eight years. So if you are, um, you can either be hired 
as someone who was previously tenured at another university, in which case when you come to Yale, they will most likely, but not always, just hire you straight into a tenured position. Um, but the majority of Yale's professors come into Yale on the tenure track, which means that they were not tenured before or um, Yale decided that they should also attain tenure at Yale, in which case they have a tenure clock of eight years with tenure consideration no later than the seventh year. Um, so what would happen in that seventh year is that they would compile what's called a tenure dossier. And this would have student evaluations, um, records of service, uh, some written material, um, and then they would submit that to their department who would then solicit recommendations from senior scholars in their field um, Yale officially says that you submit 10 recommendations. That number is often closer to 12 to 15 recommendations. Um, and so these people are, are academics who are kind of eminent in their fields, who are experts, um, who the faculty who are going through the tenure process would typically meet previously at conferences or other events. Um, when I was talking with faculty, this part of the process was what chiefly came up as a source of concern and how it favored a faculty who were white, who were male, who might've made those connections already. Um, but after that recommendation list is kind of compiled, the department as a whole would decide if it moves forward with a simple majority vote. Then uh, it would go to a divisional tenure and appointments committee. Most schools just have kind of one committee that covers all academic fields, but Yale has a bunch of different ones for different divisions, such as like, uh, you know, science, mathematics, and humanities, something like that. And there are a bunch of different professors from the, uh, the department um, or the division who are on these different committees. Then they have a simple majority vote. It would then move forwards to what's called the Joint Boards of Permanent Officers, which is compiled of all the senior faculty in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. So that is all the different departments. Um, they have a bunch of meetings throughout the year. They take up you know, five to 15 of these tenure cases each meeting. Um, the Dean of Faculty of Arts and Sciences, Tamar Gendler, would describe all the previous votes in this meeting. And then the department chair would give a quick introduction to the specific candidate. Then all of these faculty will vote. This is a two thirds majority vote. At this point in time, it's kind of like what Caitlin said, uh, pretty set in stone. If you make it past the divisional committees, you're pretty likely to have tenure, but not always the case. And then after this, it goes to the Yale Corporation for final approval, which is kind of our version of a board of trustees. They've never actually struck down an appointment, but they do have that power. And at all of these different stages, all of these votes are happening by a secret ballot. So no one knows what everyone else voted. Well, Madison, I can't help but think how to faculty balance anything else going on in their lives when they're trying to get tenure. You, you've done reporting on that, the toll that this process takes. Yeah, yeah, the toll is, is, I mean, it's hard to hear about as a student to know that a lot of, you know, my professors are just going through this because it's, I mean, seven or eight years that during the coronavirus pandemic, they even extended this by one year where you're trying to do as much research as possible. What uh, Dean Gendler had told me in one of our conversations is that a lot of schools will um, give tenure to candidates who are great, but if you get tenure at Yale, it's because you are the best in your field. So you have this pressure, not just to be amazing and be incredible, but to just be the best. And that is hanging over your head for, you know, however many years it is until you're up for review. And then beyond that, you know, you have to make these connections in your field. You have to make sure that you're um, mentoring students, all of these different things. And 
again, kind of what Caitlin was saying about the disproportionately, um, you know, male disproportionately white people of tenure, this process often disproportionately favors people who have the time and have the resources to spend all that time doing that. Um, they recently at Yale, and I think at other schools as well, have started emphasizing the service aspect of the tenure process because a lot of faculty of color are kind of expected to mentor students in ways that other faculty aren't. And that takes up a huge amount of emotional and just time as well. And so all of those little things kind of add up to a process that even if you have all the resources and time in the world is incredibly consuming and stressful. But if you don't, I mean, if you have childcare that you need to take, you know, take into account as well, this process just becomes even harder. You're hearing Madison Hahami here on Where We Live. She's a former staff reporter for the Yale Daily News who covered faculty and academics, uh, laying out how uh, the tenure process works at uh, Yale. She's now a sophomore at Yale's Hopper College. Also with us on Zoom, or rather on the phone now, is Colleen Flaherty, senior faculty reporter at Inside Higher Ed. And so, Madison, I wanted to hear more about when we think about the demographics of uh, tenured professors and how, if at all, that's changing on Yale's campus. We heard Colleen talk about um, how often those with tenure are white and male at other universities. Uh, yeah, and I'm so sorry. I said, uh, Caitlin, I meant to say Colleen, my bad. Um, yeah, and it's a similar thing um, at Yale University. For one of my pieces on the tenure process, I had looked into the demographics um, of FAS letter faculty at Yale um, in 2019. Um, and what we had found was that 64.2% of faculty who were tenured were white. 9.3% uh, Asian American, 4.1% Hispanic or Latinx, and just 3.3% were Black. Um, and those numbers have increased in recent years, and they've come at the same time as Yale has made more of a concerted effort to diversify its faculty. But because that has only happened recently, the tenure process has not kind of caught up to that. And even though Yale is recruiting more faculty, there is a very big difference between recruitment and retention. Um, so I think it does remain to be seen in recent years how Yale is making sure that its faculty of color are supported in this tenure process, are not leaving early because of all of these kind of unseen labors that a lot of these faculty are forced to take on that make the tenure process just extra hard. So we've been talking about the, the professors who get tenure on the tenure track, but another group of professors at Yale, the instructional faculty, so these are non-tenured track positions. Uh, we heard uh, Colleen talk about how many universities are relying more on non-tenured faculty, adjunct staff, and, and I'm wondering if you can talk about you know, how uh, Yale relies on instructional faculty, what you've been hearing from them in terms of you know, how they feel in, in terms of benefits that they're getting and how, you know, kind of respect that they get on campus, Madison. Madison, can you hear us? Yes, I'm so sorry. My Wi-Fi just cut out at, you know, the perfect time. Um, would you mind repeating the end of your question? <laughs> Well, I just wanted you to talk more about your reporting on the not on the instructional faculty who are non-tenured and, and how they feel uh, about, you know, some of the benefits or lack thereof that they get related uh, to those who have tenure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, instructional faculty at Yale, um, the, the kind of summary that I would say for my reporting is that it's tough all over the country, as Colleen was saying. It's a really hard system. Um, and especially we've kind of seen this like adjunctification of faculty. Um, and Yale is slightly better um, in the sense that the adjunct faculty receive a salary that is 
more livable, um, still not great, um, that adjunct faculty are allowed to serve on the Faculty of Arts and Sciences Senate, um, which gives them a much greater kind of say in how uh, the school works and gives them more power. But at the same time, it's also just really not a great situation. Um, there was at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, um, a lot of or all um, instructional faculty are on contracts that are either one year, three year or five years. And these contracts um, can be renewable, but you still have the stress every few years of, am I going to have a job after that? And you don't have that same job security as tenured faculty do. So you kind of, as you know, people going through the tenure track have this seven year, eight year deadline hanging over their head. Instructional faculty have a much shorter deadline. Um, and at the same time, um, a lot during the coronavirus pandemic, what had happened was that um, a lot of people's contracts were up and they had health insurance with their instructional faculty title. And so there was a massive concern that a lot of these people weren't going to be rehired. And ultimately almost all of them were, except Yale said the faculty, they weren't planning to hire anyways. Um, but just the fact that that was even kind of a concern for a moment in time that people might not have health insurance during the pandemic because of these contracts. Um, and another thing that kind of um, instructional faculty do have to deal with is because, um, well, be I don't even know if it's because of their, their short-term contracts, but a lot of them do not have kind of access to the same resources at Yale or don't have access to those resources unless they kind of really fight for it and make it known to the university. So one example during the coronavirus pandemic was that Yale sent out an email to all faculty who were ladder faculty or faculty on the tenure track um, or already tenured, saying that if they needed um, technological equipment to help with their classes during COVID, there was a certain email that they could contact and a certain form to fill out and they could get all of that settled. But the same offer wasn't made to faculty who were instructional. And those same, you know, instructional faculty were teaching classes as well, were still in the same pandemic, still needed the same resources, but Yale had not sent that email to them. And when instructional faculty brought it to Yale and said, hey, you know, why aren't we included on this list? And, you know, Yale rectified it, but it was kind of the point that they had to bring it to Yale in the first place, that they just weren't included on that email. Instructional faculty aren't able to eat in the dining halls with students. They have to pay for their own meals, whereas ladder faculty already have access. So a lot of instructional faculty point to kind of those small um, indignities that um, one, one faculty member had told me make them feel like they're just second class at Yale. Mm. So that reporting was done uh, last spring. You know, how has the university responded uh, you know, to your reporting, but also the concerns that are raised from instructional faculty, uh, Madison? So there are some things that have that have been in the works for a while and kind of still will be. Um, a big concern always has been salary and to Yale's credit, um, recently, I do not remember exactly when, but they did raise the adjunct faculty salary um, per course uh, to a few thousand dollars more. It's still, um, it still is not kind of at the same level or nearly close to the same level as ladder faculty, but in comparison to adjunct faculty around the country, it is in a much better position. Um, but there are other things that have just been kind of fights forever. So um, instructional faculty, for example, have a have been um, had asked uh, Yale to give them some sort of kind of promotion track and Yale responded with this thing called a lecturer one and lecturer two or lecture one and lecture two if you're an instructional faculty member in the language department that would be a sort of promotion track but instructional faculty told me that this really was more symbolic than anything it barely came with a salary raise it barely came with other kind of 
um, abilities to do things, abilities to take time off for research, um, et cetera. So those are things that people are still fighting for, just I think general recognition. Um, one big thing that Yale did do last year was that they um, changed their childcare policy for instructional faculty and gave them parental leave, uh, which was a fight for decades. And so that was a massive, massive victory for instructional faculty. Again, you're hearing Madison Hahami here on Where We Live, a former staff reporter for Yale Daily News, talking about her reporting on faculty and academics and how the, the tenure track works at Yale, but also how instructional faculty feel, those who are not uh, tenured and are not on the tenure track. You can join us if you work at a Connecticut college and university. Again, the number 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. James is calling in from New Haven. James, what did you want to share? Hi. Um, I've been teaching for about six years at a university. Um, I, I teach at the University of New Haven, and I teach at Southern Connecticut State. Um, and I started teaching at Southern recently, and I was genuinely shocked to find out that my pay was basically going to double um, at, at Southern compared to uh, UNH. And I, I guess I had been uh, – I guess I thought I was getting – fairly compensated, <laughs> but I guess I just didn't know any, any better. Um, um, and I just wanted to share that. It's been um, just a wildly different teaching experience teaching at Southern. Um, when you talk about the difference in pay, does this relate to, uh, you know, the, the union protections that are available as part of your job? Are you part of a union, James? So uh, I am not uh, part of a union. Uh, UNH had made an effort to unionize adjuncts uh, a few years ago, and that failed. Um, I'm, I'm actually kind of embarrassed to say that I voted against it um, for, for not great reasons. Uh, but no, yeah, at Southern, um, I'm paid almost double. I qualify for their retirement program. Uh, my expectations are very clear in terms of what my you know, non-academic uh, expectations and roles are. Um, and it's just, it's wildly different at a private university. Um, I just, I feel much more vulnerable there, if that makes sense. Right. Well, thank you, James, for calling in to share that with us. Colleen Flaherty is still with us. Uh, again, she's a senior reporter at Inside Higher Ed. Colleen, did you want to share, uh, respond to what James shared? Again, when we think about, you know, how uh, people in academia, you know, they need to make a living. Also thinking about, you know, what institution will give them better benefits as well as, um, you know, other um other perks or uh, aims that they're trying uh, to achieve uh, as uh, um, professors. I'm wondering if you can comment on that. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Unfortunately, I did not. I was not able to hear James' full comment, um, but it sounds like his experiences are really um, typical of a lot of non-tenure track faculty members. Um, I think, as I mentioned, um, you know, of 3,500 per course is about what you know, a lot of adjuncts can expect to be paid. Um, so even if you're teaching a full course load, let's say eight uh, courses per year at that rate, you're still going to be, you know, just rising above the, you know, federal poverty level um, that may or may not be worse depending on, um, you know, where you live. If you live in a big city, things are, you know, going to be more expensive. You may or may not have health insurance. You probably won't. Um, and, you know, uh, again, this is a big problem um, as we're, you know, going through a pandemic or expected to be teaching, you know, through a pandemic. Um, and so um, one thing that I think we haven't talked about is, you know, unfortunately, um, I think the pragmatists, um, you know, in the conversation, even the, you know, serious faculty advocates do not believe that tenure is going to make some kind of roaring comeback. 
And so a lot of where the conversation has settled now is trying to get um, non better non-tenure track jobs in place and um, more common for adjunct faculty members. So, for example, you might be um, offered, I would say, a full or a half-time load over a period of two or three years. That doesn't alleviate the pressure, you know, that you're going to have to go through every two or three years to be have your contract renewed. But it does alleviate some of the pressure that so many adjuncts face in having to, you know, essentially get a new job every semester. Um, and this arguably is a little bit better for students as well because there's more longevity, um, you know, in, in the college's, commit, you know, commitment to the faculty member. They'd be around, you know, let's say if not forever, then for three years at least. Um, and so that's where I think a lot of um, adjunct activists are putting their, um, you know, attention and intentions right now. Um, one thing that I did want to mention, though, is um, this year I have reported on a couple institutions, um, one in particular recently, Chatham University in Pennsylvania, that for various reasons did away with tenure in 2005. And just recently they decided to bring it back. Um, and it's really interesting that university's experience because they said that they were facing um, in not having tenure um, they were facing a lot of morale problems with their faculty who had to be renewed every five years and just you know were arguably facing professional stresses every five years that somebody who had already committed 20 25 years to the institution shouldn't have to face um, and they were also facing um, recruitment and retention problems because when they got to they had um, some failed searches faculty searches um, with the market being what it is really you know shouldn't happen there are more people who want professor jobs than our jobs available but what would happen is the um, university or the hiring department would get down to their last two or three um, favorite candidates and those favorite candidates would be facing uh, multiple job offers uh, from elsewhere and once they learned that Chatham University didn't have tenure they declined uh, Chatham University's uh, offer. So th this is a really instructive, I think, example for any university that is thinking of getting rid of tenure because they're, you know, are all, whatever you do, there are going to be unintended consequences. Again, that's Colin Flaherty, senior faculty reporter at Inside Higher Ed. We need to take a quick break, but I want to thank Madison Hahami for joining us, a sophomore at Yale's Hopper College. Thanks, Madison, for your perspective. Thank you for having me. Coming up, we're going to hear from UConn's chapter of the American Association of University Professors. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Today we're talking about tenure in academia. Joining us now on Zoom, Dr. Jeffrey Ogbar, who's a UConn professor of history, also executive vice president with the UConn chapter of the American Association of University Professors. Jeffrey, welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Good morning. So, uh, you know, listening to our other guests uh, lay out um, how tenure has changed and expectations, also an over-reliance uh, on many universities now with instructional faculty and adjunct. And I'm wondering if you can just give us your perspective of, of where academia stands right now in terms of even attracting talent. 
Well, it turns out that uh, the conditions, uh, I agree with what has been said earlier for the most part, and conditions across the country um, vary depending upon the political landscape. And so as mentioned in particularly red states like Georgia, uh, Florida, Texas, you'll find uh, state lawmakers who might be a little more hostile to tenure and the protections that, that tenure provides than you might find in a state like Connecticut. But there are all these it doesn't mean that we don't have people who are in various spaces still hostile, even in the bluest of states. And uh, there's also the difference in, in uh, the discipline. So there are certain disciplines like chemical engineering or finance um, or engineering of any sort, really, that uh, or law or medicine where people have jobs in industry. Uh, in the humanities, philosophy, English, journalism, um, well, not so much journalism, but history, you have people who have very few job opportunities. There are job opportunities outside and, uh, outside of academia, but most of these people get PhDs and tend to be in the university. So in those cases, we have glutted fields. And sort of when we think about supply and demand, we have, even with the great, this sort of this great surge of people who retired or who have um, you know, resigned from positions, we have not had that effect in higher education for the most part. And so attracting talent we actually have very talented people coming out and particularly glutted fields still vying for these jobs, these this, this shrinking pool of tenure track jobs. And what does this uh, look like on UConn's campus uh, from your perspective as part of the union, Jeffrey? Yeah, well, uh, I can tell you from, from both sides. Um, well, I can tell you what, as a, as a union member, of course, we're looking at data in a way that the average faculty member may not. And I can say that, we have an increase in, can, in faculty members who are not tenure track over the last you know, 40 years. But we also, this is a very complicated landscape. So I, I can give you some numbers. Over the last uh, decade, for example, we've had a 3% increase in tenure track positions, like 30, right? Uh, at the same period, we've had a 50% increase in associate professors in residence or assistant professors in residence called APIRs. And that's grown by by a raw number of 90 and a percentage of 50. So, so you can see the sort of the university's increasing demand and reliance on non-tenure track faculty members to teach classes. And APIRs, this particular iteration of an instructor is uh, compensated better than an, an adjunct. And this is a sort of teaching position that one can have for uh, a year-to-year contract that after a number of years, you can get have a multi-year contract and you not be removed without cause. But it's not as strong as a tenure track position, but not as tenuous as an adjunct. So we do have these sorts of uh, shifts here. But when it comes to searches, I can say as a faculty member who's been on search committees or recently just in our department in history, we've had searches this year, we can have, you know, 200 people apply for a position, you know? Uh, so it's not like we, and, and of those 200 or 150, you know, half at least uh, can do the job very well. So we do still have blended fields. Uh, Zoe called in because we're short on time. I, I wanted to read what Zoe shared. Another big aspect of tenure and reliance on adjuncts is also reliance on grad student labor, admitting more grad students than could even get a tenure track job. And so um, you know, this this particular person is currently a sociology grad student who teaches undergrad classes while taking while taking classes as well. Uh, so Jeffrey, can you respond to to Zoe's comment? Yes. <clears throat> We have, um, so across the country, we've had over the last half century, greater increase at major universities for research and publishing. 
And so faculty members in the process have been relieved of teaching and we've expanded graduate programs much to the chagrin of the of, you know sort of academia really in our market because we have we're producing more people than jobs available but these graduate students are teaching classes and so we think of this as a sort of professional development process right they, they become more acquainted with pedagogy with instruction organizing a class and we think this is a good thing uh, so we do have a greater reliance on graduate students than i think a century a half century ago and then we also have more of those uh, courses um just faculty members have fewer loads that we did, you know, uh, at major universities half century ago as well. So yes, we do have a greater reliance on graduate students. Um, and, and that's a separate category from the APIRs and adjuncts that we talked about earlier. Mm. But with a limited amount of positions available, I mean, that's, I guess, the sticking point where people are, you know, you know putting together uh, so much scholarship and work uh, to get these positions and the challenge when we see so many schools, uh, you know, maybe shifting uh, to non, uh, you know, tenured faculty because they want to also shift with enrollment demands, but the toll that it takes personally, Jeffrey. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, uh, there are people, I imagine if you got a hundred people, they have a hundred different experiences and they would, uh, the tolls would vary depending on their you know, individual lifestyles. And so, uh, I, I have heard many stories of people who, um, you know, adjuncts, for example, which I argue, I've said for years, pound for pound, there's probably no workforce, no demographic in the United States, um, with, uh, fewer compensation, a more uneven compensation per education than, uh, than adjunct professors. And, you know, you could have universities where people get paid. I heard someone earlier say $3,500 per class. But, you know, you could think of, of the University of Connecticut, uh, where the adjuncts are making probably a, a we used to be $4,500 for a three-credit course a few years ago. So let's say we've gone up, be generous, to 5000 So you teach um, four classes a year, equivalent to a full-time professor, and make $20,000 a year with a PhD from any university, the Oxford, Harvard, Yale. And, uh, and then you don't have benefits of you know, health benefits or travel money or all these other things. And so there's, there's not the compensation. It's a very intense is a laborious process and so it can be very straining but again there are some really fascinating articles out on the internet if anyone's ever interested in, in why people people ask the question why would people put themselves in such a competitive job market but there's this this hope that you become that you get it that you land a tenure track job i mean it's something that's quite fulfilling in many ways people find great joy in in teaching and the research that may go along with it depending on your institution that's Jeffrey Ogbar, Dr. Jeffrey Ogbar, UConn Professor of History, also Executive Vice President with the UConn Chapter of the American Association of University Professors. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Also with us was Colleen Flaherty, again, a senior reporter at Inside Higher Ed. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>